Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim Morrow. I'm a member here. Today we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. Please join me as I pray and let's just quiet our hearts before the Lord. Father, we come to you with many often anxious thoughts in our minds. Uh, what will the rest of today look like? What will this week look like? Any burdens? We want to just submit those things to you now. I want to ask that you be present with us in this gathering. And God, that you would use this text to give us a beautiful glimpse, a precious glimpse into the utter faithfulness of your son. And more than that, that we would come to appreciate how good this news is for us. The news of his faithfulness, which overshadows and conquers our faithlessness. Be with us now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It is always hard to fail. Uh, if you've ever been fired from a job, for instance, or, or even cut from a sports team, I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. All of us have failed in something uh, to some extent. And to be honest, there are many reasons why failure can be so incredibly difficult. First, it's just embarrassing. Uh, there's often something public about these life-changing failures. Certainly, there's also this spiritual and emotional toll of rejection associated with failure of one kind or another. It's incredibly hard, especially if there's someone sort of from the outside of your life who looks in on your life and basically determines, no, that this is not good. There's something wrong here. It's incredibly hard. There's often also 
the disappointment of, of not being a part of something significant that you were planning to be a part of because of this failure, whatever it may be. But then on top of all of that, our failures can also really shake our confidence in the future. We can easily be plagued by this sense of fear, dread, even insecurity, thinking, I, I, I just I just don't think I can do this. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this. And, and I don't know how it will all end and, and go as a result. It is a terrible thing to fail. Maybe some of you even this morning are suffering through a, a recent failure of one kind or another today. Uh, maybe a particular failure of yours is very pressing and, and very evident in your life, constantly weighing you down and hard not to keep in view. Uh, in, in a way, if we have the spiritual eyes to see it this morning, I think our passage is meant to meet us in that failure and give us a great confidence uh, in God's solution to our failure. I pray you would. Well, for a first century Jew, for first century Jews who would read the Gospel of Matthew, for them, there would have been a constant reminder of their nation's failure, both here in the book, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and also even for them in their daily life and experience. And, and that reminder would be namely the presence of the Roman Empire. There's evidence of their failure. See, Israel had this rich spiritual history in which God had been incredibly kind to them. To start, he, he raised them up from this elderly man and his wife uh, to begin with. He then delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, providing for them along the way. And then he led them even to conquer this promised land they were now living in here in Jesus' day and time. He even appointed a number of kings, even though in the history of the kingdom, like King David, who helped the nation to prosper, all from basically nothing, all from just this one elderly man named Abraham. But at this point in Israel's history, all of these incredible events were distant memories. Because time and time again, the nation of Israel had failed to live in obedience to their God. Time and time again, they fell short to his commandments and even at times forgot him altogether until now during Jesus' life and ministry, here they are ruled by a pagan kingdom and surrounded by a number of, of other pagan kingdoms as well. Listen, they, they were supposed to be the nation that God used to bless and redeem all these other nations. But now as they looked back on the story of the Old Testament in the pages of scripture, they were constantly reminded of this pattern of falling to temptation and sin and their failure to be faithful to God. They just couldn't do it. Frankly, most of them, I trust, weren't sure how it would all go as a result. What kind of king even, for instance, could possibly right all of these wrongs and set them back on course and, of course, enter King Jesus? Now, 
I, I want you to picture the scene from last week's passage. Now, I want you to picture this huge crowd of Jews from all over the region, uh, the elite Jews from the city of Jerusalem, the more ordinary Jews, the commoners from the countryside. I want you to picture them all flocking to the wilderness where this Old Testament-looking figure, this prophet, John the Baptist, was baptizing these many beleaguered Jews in the name of repentance because in many ways of of all their failures in in this past, in their history. And then I want you to picture Jesus standing there among them all in the midst of that crowd. The long-anticipated king of Israel in this royal line of David, who we've just read, was conceived of the Virgin Mary, born of the Holy Spirit. I want you to picture him, the son of God himself in human flesh, standing here in the crowds among his now fellow Jews. He has come to identify with his people, to be counted even as one of them. He has come, as that angel told Joseph, to save his people from their sins, to save them from this complicated history of failure. But there he was, standing among them, eventually being baptized, just like they were to identify with the nation of Israel, even in light of all its failures. And when he was baptized, as we read... The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father says from heaven, church, this is my Son, says the Father, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. In other words, listen, all these other Jews who were supposed to be my children, I I love them too. Absolutely, but I am not as well pleased with them. They need to be washed clean of their sins. They need a baptism for repentance. They have a long and complicated history of being unfaithful to me. But this one here, this virgin-born son of mine with my spirit dwelling within him, he and I, we are good. I am well pleased with him. And with these words, God the Father has now confirmed there is finally a descendant of Abraham, finally a Jewish man, an Israelite, who is not corrupted by the curse of sin. And here in our passage, this spirit of Israel's God, which just descended on Jesus like a dove in last week's passage, by the way. That same spirit sends this King Jesus into the wilderness to be, quote, tempted by the devil. Now, if you are not familiar with the story of the Old Testament, it would be actually quite easy to miss most of the point of our passage here today uh, because there are echoes of the Old Testament story all over these 11 verses. Uh, In particular, Matthew seems to be writing this in a way that draws at least Genesis chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 
to mind. And so I want to start with Genesis 3 because it comes first, of course, but also by far it is more familiar to most of us. Uh, The obvious parallel between this story and the story of the fall is, of course, this theme of temptation. In in both stories, God's image-bearing humans are being tempted by an evil spiritual deceiver called Satan or the devil. But what's interesting in this case is that some of the details here are even less promising than that original story from Genesis chapter 3. First, uh, Jesus is on his own out here in the wilderness. He doesn't have anyone to bear the weight of this temptation with him. Uh, But if you'll remember also in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in a heavenly garden of delight and goodness uh, that was filled with, quote, every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. They were not famished. They had not fasted. They had every kind of food you can imagine at their fingertips. God had lavished them with all they needed. Meanwhile, Jesus here faced the temptation of Satan in a wilderness after 40 days without food. So clearly, if anything, Jesus seems to be at a disadvantage even compared to Adam and Eve. It would be reasonable to read this with Genesis 3 in mind and think this is probably not going to end well. I mean, the first one didn't even end well. Here we go again, right? We're back at the fall. But Genesis 3 probably isn't even the closest parallel to our passage today. Uh, There is likely even a stronger connection between this passage in Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, We read of this during the call to worship. Lucas read this at the start of the service. But but what was going on? Let's just consider what was going on in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8... The people of Israel were in the wilderness, and God explained, he said in our call to worship, basically, that they were in the wilderness wandering so that he could test them. It says even to see what was in their heart. And so as Moses prepares the Israelites to go out of the wilderness and to conquer the promised land, he sort of pauses, and in Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8, he warns the people of Israel just how important it will be for them to remember the Lord, their God. To remember that he was the one who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. To remember that he is the one who provided them with manna from heaven when they were in hunger. To remind them that he will be the one who drives out these nations from the land of Canaan that they would soon occupy, the promised land that God had pledged to them. Here's how Moses ends chapter 8 in Deuteronomy. He says to the people of Israel, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, as Jesus, you might notice, is tempted to worship Satan in our passage as God He says, I solemnly warn you, if you do this today, that you shall surely perish. It's a link back to the the garden as well. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He continues, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, like all these nations you're about to conquer, he says, so shall you perish. 
because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now fast forward to the time of Matthew, to the days of Jesus, and now here they sat, ruled over by the Roman Empire, surrounded by these other kingdoms, all because they had forgotten the Lord. They had gone after other gods. They had failed. And now even in just last week's passage, the voice of the Lord had spoken again. He just declared, right? This Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. You see what's going on here in this passage? Jesus is being put forward here as if he is the representative of the entire nation of Israel. It's almost as if he functions as if he's a new kind of Israel in himself. And now the question in our passage is this. Will he obey the voice of the Lord his God or will he cave to temptation and seek his own interests like the people of Israel? Israel had so many times before. Jesus does not wander the wilderness for 40 years like the Israelites, but the Spirit drives him there for 40 days and 40 nights. It's hard to miss the connection. He is not warned to stop worshiping other gods, uh, but or he's not warned that he'd perish if, if, if the raging nations, like the raging nations, if he disobeyed the voice of God. Those things are not exactly the same, but Satan, notice, does offer him all the kingdoms of this world if he will only bow and worship him. To a first century Jew, these parallels would be very hard to miss. Jesus is being tempted in all the ways that Israel was tempted throughout the story of the Old Testament. And those tests did not go particularly well for the descendants of Abraham. If anything, the conditions here seem far worse even for Jesus of Nazareth. We're supposed to read this and be reminded of Israel's many failures, possibly even to anticipate another failure. But instead, what we see, of course, is the exact opposite. Jesus proves himself faithful. And so with with that in mind, let's just make a few observations about these temptations themselves. First, truthfully, the better word for what's going on here is probably testing rather than temptation. Uh, Matthew actually uses both words, testing and temptation, but it's important to see, you notice, it was the Spirit who drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so, yes, in in one sense, Jesus is being tempted in a number of ways here, but this is all presumably part of God's plan to test and thus confirm the very thing he's just announced. That is namely to test that Jesus is, in fact, his beloved son, much like he tested the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Matthew wants us to have no doubts about Jesus' sonship by the time we finish reading this story. With that in mind, notice both of Satan's first two tests begin with that cynical little qualification. He says, if you are the son of God, he says, here, do these things, right? If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself off of this temple. In both cases, this is important. The key in in the point here is not just, listen, Jesus, do these magic tricks, Uh, to show us that you're something more than just a human. No, instead, the point seems to be, if you truly are God's son, let's see, will you trust in him? 
Will you trust in him? Or will you let your weariness and your exhaustion drive you to a kind of pride and self-reliance like Israel had done time and time again? And here, church, it's just important for us to remember and to identify with Jesus' full humanity. Right? It's tempting, isn't it, to read this and think, well, of course he passed the test, right? He's the son of God in human flesh. And it's true, he is, but notice that did not seem to make this experience any easier for him. When Satan told him to turn these stones into bread, yes, it's true, he, he could have done that. But more than that, the point is, he also hadn't eaten for 40 days. He, he could have really used a loaf of bread at the moment. Jesus experienced this cosmic temptation in the face of very real and very extreme human hunger, which means we should relate to his human temptation and what means he can relate to ours. Remember, there is even a story, by the way, of one of these Abraham descendants named Esau who literally sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of stew because he was like so hungry, right? So we should see these echoes throughout the whole of the Old Testament or just before Deuteronomy 8. Remember in Exodus, as the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, hungry themselves, some of them whined and they even wished they could go back to Egypt where they were slaves because at least there we had some bread, they claimed. But instead of whining, instead of wishing he could go back to Egypt, notice Jesus quotes Moses. He quotes the scriptures here from Deuteronomy 8 when Moses explained to those very Israelites that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, there is more to this earthly life than just the material stuff of this earthly life. All this material stuff that we see, all this material stuff that we experience on a daily basis, it depends itself on the invisible, the spiritual word of the living God. And here we see Jesus passed the test that Israel had failed time and time again. He did not let his hunger drive him to sinful pride and self-reliance. He was faithful to the Lord, his God. He obeyed his voice. Now, you might have noticed something interesting even just here in the back and forth between Satan and Jesus. Did you notice there's a lot of scripture being used uh, first here by Jesus, but then also next even by Satan. In his second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of a temple, the highest point, and he says, again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, from this high point of the temple, for it is written, and then he quotes the scriptures, basically saying, look, look, God says here in the Bible that he will command his angels concerning you, uh, that, that they will bear you up so you won't strike your foot against a stone. They should be able to help you is the idea, right? If, if you sort of throw yourself down. I mean, don't you think, Jesus? But in response, Jesus, again quoting scripture, he says, again it is written, and I don't think that really gets it across. In some translations it says, uh, but it is also written, 
In other words, he's kind of counteracting Scripture with a better and more faithful understanding of Scripture. He's debating Satan in the Scriptures here, saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so we see Satan distorts what God has said in Scripture to try and confuse Jesus in his weakness, to tempt him to sin. Jesus does not take the bait. He quotes the Scriptures back to Satan. He relies on the Lord rather than testing him. And I want you to notice this theme of God's word being used throughout the whole of this passage, both for evil and for good. This passage shows us Jesus' incredibly high view of the Old Testament scriptures. In the face of temptation from Satan, where does he look? He looks to what God has revealed in the scriptures. It's also just helpful to remember, really, in some ways, this entire exercise is, is one big referendum on God's word, because we have to remember last week, it was God who just said, this is my beloved son. He just spoke, and then here comes Satan, the tempter, to cast all of that into suspicion, to call all of it into question, to question what it was that God has just said, much like he did back in Genesis 3 when he says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that you should not eat? of any tree in the garden? Here, he says effectively, did Jesus, did did God really say that you're his son? Are, Are you sure about that? Then in this final temptation, the devil does not even bother quoting the scriptures. Instead, he just goes right for the jugular, as they say. He brings Jesus up to a high mountain, Now, throughout scriptures, and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew even, mountains are places of transcendence. If you just even put yourself in an ancient worldview, when we talk about the earth in an ancient worldview, nobody knew that that was an orb floating in what is outer space. Outer space was a completely foreign concept to them. Earth just meant ground realm. It's where we live here. The heavens, they didn't know tons about what was up there in the sky at night, but that is the cosmos, the heavens. And mountains then were the highest places on earth, the closest overlap to heaven in a sense. And for that reason, often very profound things happen to take place on mountains. And on this mountain, Matthew says, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he sent to them, all these I will give you. If you fall down and worship me. Now remember, these are the raging nations, essentially, that God scattered at the Tower of Babel, the kingdoms that Satan is showing to Jesus. These are the sinful nations that God said he would use Israel to redeem and to bless. And we've already seen in Matthew that Jesus has come to be a king of all kinds of people. Remember the the wise men who came from these far-off kingdoms in the east. So the devil's really striking a nerve here, in other words. It's as if he knows what Christ has come to do. He has come to be king over all these kingdoms, over every tribe, nation, people, and language. And and rather than having to go about this the hard way, through obedience, through a painful, grueling process of relying on the Lord, even unto death. Rather than doing that, Satan is basically saying, here, Jesus, look, I could give you all of these kingdoms right now. 
No cross needed. If you'll just bow down and worship me. It shows us the aim of Satan's scripture-twisting deception. It is to divert worship away from the one true God of Israel onto himself, onto literally anything or anyone else but God. But here again, Jesus shows his spiritual fortitude and his utter faithfulness to God. He says, be gone, Satan. He, he shuts the whole thing down altogether. And again, he quotes the scripture saying this time, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Yet again, Jesus passes the test that Israel failed over and over and over. He remembers the Lord his God. He obeys his voice, even in the face of temptation. So church, the claim Matthew is driving at here, I hope is evident for us today, is this. The claim is that Jesus is faithful to God in all the ways we fail to be. And this is incredible news for us, sinful failures, <laughs> today. Uh, this is no less true for us today than it was for Matthew's first century Jewish audience. And so next, with that claim in mind, let's just consider two very simple takeaways here. The first one is this. First, let's admit our infidelity to God the Father. Let's admit it. The truth is, much like the Jews time and time again, we have failed to be faithful to God in his word. We have failed to be faithful in all the ways that Jesus proves to be faithful in our passage today. In many ways, we are all tempted to sort of make our life happen when we are in times of need, to take matters into our own hands rather than simply waiting for God to provide for us in one way or another, waiting for him to sort of give us this day our daily bread. We try turning these stones to bread instead as we wait. We cut corners we manipulate, we blur lines and lower bars, all to try and control the outcome of our life, all to try and feed our instant hunger. I want us to see Jesus does not have this sin tendency. He is far more faithful than we will ever be in this way. We're also tempted to put God to the test in many ways, uh, we're tempted to read his word in manipulative ways that shine the best possible light on us and our desires, even if, you know, it takes just a little bit of twisting, right? Why, why is it that you're defining your identity based on all these, these qualities that are clearly revealed as sinful in the scriptures? Uh, why is it, for instance, that you are pursuing a divorce when no Christian in, in history would say that there are biblical grounds for that divorce? Oh, it's, it's simple. It's because I'm unhappy. And unless I live in these ways, I'll, I'll never be happy. And if there's one thing I know, right, if there's one thing I know, it's that God wants me to be happy. It's amazing this is the case, but it's true. This is a very common argument used to justify all 
kind of sins today. If it doesn't make me happy, God must not want it. Jesus, I imagine, was not happy for his 40 days hungry in the wilderness. The people of Israel kind of is, is the point. They were not happy as they wandered through the wilderness toward the promised land. God, by his spirit, leads us all kinds of places that may not make us happy, friends. But the idea here is basically, I mean, right, God? You want me to be happy, don't you, God? You better answer carefully, God, because if you even hesitate, you might look like a mean God. What, do you want me to be miserable like I am right now? Come on, God, right? Too often, we sink our teeth right into that deceptive bait. Satan catches us. We fail. But church, the good news is that Jesus does not have this tendency. He is far more faithful than we will ever be in these ways. Finally, like Jesus, we are also tempted by a lust for power and all kinds of spiritual compromises that promise to deliver us power if only we will sell our souls just a little bit in this way or in that way. When Satan, right, so often takes us to the top of our very high mountain so that he can show us all the recognition we would have if we were just more successful in our careers. When he takes us to that mountain to show us all the credit our spouse would give to us if they just appreciated us a little more and paid more attention. Or when he brings us to that mountain to show us all the influence we could have in people's life for good if we just served in that role in the church. Or maybe even how great this country might be if more people like us were in charge of it. Till eventually, as we bow over and over to these lofty ambitions, our lives begin to look more like Satan's more dark, more manipulative, more self-focused than we ever even imagined because in all of our aspirations, in all of our status-seeking church, we have forgotten the Lord our God. We have disobeyed his voice. Then as we consider the, the effects of all this infidelity to God spread out across the entire church. My goodness, it is it's hard not to be overwhelmed with disappointment and with frustration. When we consider the countless Bible-believing Christians in the history of our nation who use the scriptures to justify enslaving black humans and then later to resist the civil rights movement, or today, even those who, who elevate one morally unqualified leader after another, all because of their sort of celebrity status and this prestige they seem to have, or even those leaders who then use their positions of influence to abuse or to belittle God's people. See, a, a first century Jew would have had to come to grips with the many failures of Israel before he could ever receive this story as good news and to celebrate it 
to celebrate the complete faithfulness of King Jesus. And in the same way, church, we have to admit our infidelity to God the Father before we will ever see this story as good news as well. There's a lot that we have to come to grips with here, even today, as God's people in 2024. We have to own, church, that our failures, even personally, they are not just the inevitable result of quote-unquote triggers that we face. As if there's just no separation between, oh, the trigger was pulled, and, and here's the explosion, right? What happens when you pull the trigger of a gun? It, it shoots, it fires. What, what, what were we to do, right? As if our greatest problems and deepest troubles are simply out there in all the external circumstances that come and press in on us, the blame for our failure, how could it not simply rest on them rather than the spiritual disease that we all have in our hearts, which compels us to fall prey to the temptations of Satan over and over and over again, friends, our problem is not just that we live in a quote-unquote fallen world, though we do. Our problem is that we have not listened to the voice of the Lord. Our problem is that we have turned aside from him to run after other false gods and all kinds of idolatries. Our problem is that we just can't do it. We have, church, and will continue to fail. And so maybe, again, you are feeling the weight of that even long before you walked in the door this morning. Maybe you cannot seem to, to, to live with that failure out of you. It's just always before you. Maybe it is pressing on your heart and mind even now. You have a real problem here. Well, the point of this passage, praise God, is also to introduce us to God's glorious solution. It is important to admit our infidelity to God, yes and amen, but next, church, let's also rejoice in the complete fidelity of his beloved son. This is the response our passage is meant to elicit in the readers who believe in King Jesus. Finally, we have a human child of God who can remain faithful to God even in the face of temptation. Listen, church, this offspring of Eve actually has what it takes to crush the head of this serpent. This divine son of David really has what it takes to rule and reign over all nations forever and ever. Because church, this weak and beleaguered man in the wilderness, ravaged with hunger, that man is the son of the living God. This should give us just tremendous confidence in the cosmic capabilities of King Jesus. And it should also simply cause us to celebrate and to rejoice in his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. And that right there, that is the message that we want to resonate loud and clear out from this church and from any other churches we plant or any other churches we partner with. Not that we've somehow cracked the code here 
Oh yeah, you, you've got to go to redemption. They have figured out how to do church in a faithful way. That's not the message that we want coming out of this church. You, you got to come to redemption. They, they do expository preaching at redemption, right? Not all this topical nonsense, right? They practice meaningful membership at redemption. They're not a bunch of consumers there, right? Uh, they don't even want to be a mega church at redemption, okay? They don't even want to do a second service at redemption. Now, if you know me, you know I actually do think these are, are important practices that I pray will, will help us to be faithful to God. So don't mishear me. But the truth is, listen, there is just an invisible spiritual quality to the life of any Christian and thus any church. There just is. And frankly, we can do all these things incredibly well with excellence. We can organize our church to the letter of the law by the book. But if we are not overjoyed, by the complete extent of this Jesus' faithfulness to God, especially against the backdrop of our unfaithfulness, and then I'm sorry, but listen, no philosophy of ministry will matter, and no philosophy of ministry will help us even a little bit. More than anything else, church, we have to be a people that rejoices that in this Jesus, God has given us access to a whole new kind of faithfulness. A, a faithfulness that far overshadows our infidelity. A faithfulness that, frankly, we would have no hope of experiencing apart from Christ. Uh, there's a famous quote uh, from Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, it's often used to sort of dismiss Christianity in the church. He famously said, I love your Christ but not your Christianity. Or I love your Christ, but not your Christians. Now to start, it, it's worth noting that many Christians and churches, as we've already said, over the centuries have failed in spectacular ways that I have no interest in, in, in sort of excusing or even explaining away. Uh, when professing Christians do all kinds of wicked things in the name of our religion, we should be the first to point this out. And as, as we've already said, we should simply admit that it is so. Not only is that not okay, it's also not something we should just be content to say, that's just how it goes, this is just life. No, we live on the other side of, of the crucifixion. We live on the other side of the resurrection. We have the promise of this same spirit living in us. So when people who truly do believe in Jesus live together according to the principles of this gospel and this kingdom, yes, absolutely, our Christianity should look very much like Christ's faithful, obedient life. But in light of our passage today, I hope you can see maybe how a quote like this, I love your Christ, but not your Christianity. I hope you can see how a quote like that really quite misses the point. To say that I, I love your Christ, but not so much your Christians is really to misunderstand our Christ. While it may be subtle, uh, first, there is certainly a hint of, of uh, a little bit of pride, maybe, and self-promotion in that quote. Notice apparently it's Gandhi who gets to sit above both Christ and Christ's people to sort of judge and to determine who is good and who is right among them. That Jesus, you know, oh, he clearly gets it, right? Thank you, Gandhi. Um, but, but more than that, it misses this profound truth 
It misses it, which is embedded deep at the very heart of our gospel, that it is this Jesus who is faithful in all the ways that we are not faithful. This is the whole point. He is the source of our fidelity to God. His divine human life is the power we need to resist the temptation of the devil. And he deserves all the credit for any ounce of fidelity that we have towards this God. Church, we will only live faithful lives to the extent that we live by faith in God's beloved and faithful son. We must be crucified so that it is no longer we who live, but he who lives in us. This is the key to overcoming our failures. The whole key is that we can't overcome our failures. And the very thing we need is this king who can. This is really interesting. Um, Here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, The devil takes King Jesus to this high mountain. He offers him all the kingdoms of this world if he'll only bow to him and worship. But at the end of this gospel, after Jesus dies in our place on the cross, after he's raised again to new and everlasting life, it's almost as if we see this very story happening all over again, but in reverse. At the end of Matthew's gospel, it will be Jesus who takes his disciples to a high mountain. They will worship him, we will read, but some doubt it. And instead of being offered all the kingdoms of this world, Jesus will claim that he is already in possession of these kingdoms of, these, of the world. He will claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. But church, it won't be because he reached out his hand to grasp for that authority here on the mountain with Satan in chapter 4. Jesus will be exalted in this way. He will gain that authority over these kingdoms and far, far more, even authority over Satan himself, because he is the only man faithful enough not to grasp for that authority in the midst of temptation. Because he will prove to be faithful enough to lay down even his very own life as a ransom for many. Church, this faithful son of God will lay down his beloved life for us. And so listen, church, this Jesus is incredible. He is infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious. That is is all true, but listen, Before he is any of those things, he is faithful to God, his Father, like no other human ever. That is why he deserves to be the king of all creation, and that is why we should worship him and him alone. Let's pray together now as we prepare to close in song this morning. Father God, we thank you for this chance to be together and to get even just a glimpse of Jesus' complete and total faithfulness to you, God. As we've sung today, great 
is his faithfulness. God, we have no hope of this kind of pure and holy and righteous life apart from him. We have no hope, but we thank you for graciously sending him to us that we could trust in him and him alone, that we could be included in him and him alone, that we could be united and made one with him and him alone as we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. God, we rejoice in you for that. We bring you our failures, we lay them down before you, and we lift our eyes up to your resurrected, exalted Son. Help us, Lord, to trust in him all the more. Help us to live by faith in him that we might be made faithful like him. We pray these things together now. In Jesus' name, amen.